You are listening to The Airing Cupboard, the podcast where the extraordinary stories of ordinary people get an airing. Phew, that's a mouthful. Welcome back into The Airing Cupboard. I hope you are all well, wherever you are. And speaking of wherever you are, I think I might have mentioned before that my podcast platform allows me to see where in the world the Aaron Cupboard is being listened to. So it allows me to see what countries and also what area within that country. Well, of course, it's vague, but still I love looking at the map to find out where you all are. I used to love backpacking and discovering the world and so now looking at the globe or Google Earth is as good as it gets, I'm afraid. It makes me travel by proxy from the comfort of my cupboard. So this week I would like to welcome our new listeners from Jerusalem and Papeiti in French Polynesia. I do wonder how or where on earth you found this podcast. Anyway, Lovely to have you with us. Let's get on with our story. So this week, I must give you a little and kind warning. It is the very first time that I had to tick the box for explicit language while uploading this episode. Indeed, our protagonist borrows two or three words from the colorful vernacular. So beware if you are listening with children. I will leave it to him to tell his story. And I thank him a million times for letting me use his voice. My mum was a um, was a single mother. She was an unwed pregnant mother and she was 16 when she was pregnant. She was 17 when she had me and she was a runaway. She had run away from home uh, when she was about you know, 16 or so, and was staying, oh, all sorts of places. She even told me she was sleeping in a barn on horse hay at one stage. And uh, clearly somewhere in between barns and horse hay, she managed to meet up with someone because that's how she got pregnant with me. She had quite a fractious relationship with her mother, hence the running away. And that was all mended over a period of years, by the way. They had a very close relationship and my mum and my grandmother were the two most important women in my formative years. She stayed in a, a place where unwed mothers went for the you know, latter part of their pregnancy and their babies were often adopted out. And mum, my mum told me that, uh, yeah, I was the only one of the girls that she was in with who was not adopted out and that she'd always intended to keep the baby and that uh, yeah so I always felt very fortunate in that regard and it, you know there's actually been a bit of press coverage lately about women of my mother's era saying that they were being you know forced to make decisions about uh, losing you know giving up their children but my mum said that she never actually felt that pressure so it was interesting Mum and I lived in a state housing flat in one of the sort of lower socio-economic suburb at the time. And so we grew up, it was just the two of us. I didn't have a father when I was growing up. 
and we used to go and visit Auntie or so and so we'll call her Dawn, Auntie Dawn every couple of months or so in the middle of the city and and I only the penny only dropped recently that actually the it was the family law courts and uh, she was like my mum's guardian because my mum was a ward of the state. So I grew up with a single mum who was a ward of the state on a single mother's pension. Which I thought was, I don't know, I like that story. It's a bit of an Aussie battler story. And my mum is still around and my grandmother passed away, you know, a few years ago. But, but one of the things that, that I like about that story was that I never knew when I was growing up that there had ever been any anything but, uh, you know, great love between my grandmother and my mother. But apparently it wasn't always that way. There was all sorts of fighting over who was going to look after the baby and various things. But my mum, uh, a fiercely stubborn, independent woman that she was, uh, you know, she did. She kept me. She looked after me. She raised me. She pretty good. She... Um, went back to school and did night school so that she could get her, you know, leavers equivalent, matriculation. And then all of her friends from night school said, oh, we're going to go to teacher's college. And so she enrolled for teacher's college and went and bought the books. And then all of her friends changed their mind. But my mum was too cheap, you know, to give up the books. She said, well, I've already paid the books and I've already paid the fees. So she went to teacher's college and got a teaching degree and, you know, uh, over a period of time, by the time I was about nine years of age, my mum had stable full-time employment in a good job and we managed to move out of that suburb and uh, into our own home, which was lovely. And a few years later, she met my father, who I suppose is actually my stepfather, but uh, yeah, and so that was, my, that was my childhood and sort of transition to having two parents instead of one. So I did pretty well at school. I was a smart kid and, uh, you know, classic bright but lazy pupil, you know, got the smart but didn't try very hard would be lovely to see. But I, I went to the, you know, junior primary in the local area and it was a bit of a rough area. It's not too much of an exaggeration. And my grandmother and my grandfather, who has his own interesting life story, um, paid for me to go to a nice little Catholic private school about 10 kilometres up the road. So I uh, used to toddle up there, and at the same time that I started in year four of primary school, my mother had her first teaching job just around the corner from there. So we used to drive in, she used to drop me off and go to work and pick me up and take me home. So I was you know, reasonably well, well educated at the end of the day. And then I stuffed it up, which I think is the next part of your story. <laughs> So like most people, when I finished uh, school, the time comes to make a decision, well, what do you want to do with your life? And my, the, I remember my application was to do uh, medicine. And then uh, the, my second option was architecture. And then my third options, I can't remember, but I think I just read through the job guide and may have accidentally become an, an actuarial someone or an, or an archivist. I think I just didn't get past A's in the Commonwealth Job Guide. So I chose doctor and then everything else starting with A. I didn't get into medicine because it was and still is very selective and you need a particularly high grade. But I did get into study architecture. And so I chuffed off to my first day of university in architecture when I, you know, when I was still 17 years of age. 
somewhat across town, so I had to drive a car in, and then I was ride-sharing with someone because petrol was expensive and, and all that stuff. But, you know, lo and behold, like many of these decisions that you make when you're 17, really the, the fundamental thing is that if you if you bounce it, bounce it around and no one shouts you down and says, oh, that's a stupid idea, then you kind of go, oh, that sounds good. My parents won't be ashamed of me. I get to live under their roof for a couple of years for free while I'm, you know, ostensibly doing something useful with my life. But, you know, I got in there and after about oh, three or four months, I just realised I'd caught the wrong bus. And I was just a fish out of water. And, uh, you know, my lecturers discovered that pretty quickly too. The design creative part of things I was woeful at. I got a conceited pass. I think I just did a pretty, a couple of pretty cack-handed sketches of a fairly poorly thought-out idea where I'd clearly missed the point of the brief anyway. I mean, don't get me wrong, no one else's was particularly good. But I'd say one of the first things that they need to do is just pick out the people who really have no particular interest or skill in it. But I didn't have any real creative flair or verve or passion. And to tell you the truth, I was a 17-year-old boy, like most of the people in the class were 17, and just the transition from being a student in high school who was quite well-liked and doing pretty well to just being a stranger in a strange place was just a bit much for me. Anyway, I persisted until the end of the year. I remember in that year we had this tutor and uh, he's part of this story. He was a bit of a lugubrious fellow anyway. He was a bit of a dry fellow. He wasn't very warm, fuzzy and inviting, you know, not like a school teacher who's all, you know, caring about your mental health and your pastoral care. He was a pretty dour-looking guy. And I remember, you know, he looked at, I think I did a presentation with someone and he just said, boring as batshit. And it was one of his favourite sayings and it cut quite deep. It was a bit of a put down. And to tell you the truth, he was right. But as a 17-year-old, it was just a bit too much. Basically, in my mind, I hated him. He was just such a sourpuss. He didn't like my work, I didn't like him. He didn't seem to like anyone, to tell you the truth. And I just thought he was an arsehole and I just thought he shouldn't be involved in teaching and things like that. This was the guy who for many years in my mind was a kind of a nemesis to me. He was a person who looked me fairly and squarely in the soul and said, you're crap. And then I took a detour. I sort of dropped out of architecture, not just because I clearly wasn't going to do well and wasn't enjoying it, but because I got a job, a part-time job in a nightclub working behind a bar, and it was the best job I've ever had in my whole life. I was making $10 an hour, uh, hot and cold, running you know, attention from the members of the fairer sex, free drinks, and I loved it. I was getting 10 bucks an hour, and I was like, I was so looking forward to going to work on a Friday night and I had a fairly sheltered existence up to that point with regard to nightlife and, you know, having fun and things. I, I don't think I'd ever been to a nightclub before I actually started working in one and it was just opened my eyes and I thought it was amazing and so in pretty short form I uh, worked more in the nightclub, dropped, stopped 
coming to lectures eventually dropped out of architecture without bothering to tell them I just didn't turn up for the final exam and the final portfolio and um, uh, met a girl she's now my wife but that was all at tender age of about sort of 18 or 19 and I just limped out of architecture with my tail between my legs and I suppose I went from someone who might have some sort of a career or a future to a guy who's uh, washing dirty glasses and emptying ashtrays in a pub which was perfectly fine for me for a while but uh, I suppose uh, life circumstances kind of eventually reminded me that this might not be a real long-term prospect uh, and so I had to make some changes after that. I moved out of home with this young lady and I worked sort of full-time in the nightclub, meaning the things that need to be done during the day as well, including collecting all the you know cartons of beer and alcohol deliveries and restocking the bars and cleaning them. And I was really enjoying it and uh, she and I were in love and we had a flat and we were. she was doing the same thing. She was had not done so well at her university degree and was in between careers. And so we were having a good old time and then uh, it, uh, suddenly we were pregnant. <laughs> and and that, was, that, well, that was the thing. <laughs> And then, this is after a year or so, so I think I was about 21 really by the time I'd sort of bumbled along to this stage of university dropout, nightclub god, and now, you know, father-to-be. And straight away your mind goes to, uh, I want to be a real father and I better get a real job, and this is not a real job. I... Um, thought, well, I'd better go back to university. And in fact, all of my parents and a lot of my family members are school teachers. So I thought, well, what's a real job? School teaching. And uh, my wife, she was already had already done one year of school teaching and deferred. So we basically both went back at the same time and she finished her degree as I started. And we both still worked in nightclubs and pubs, or I did anyway, and made some money and we had a little unit and uh, raising our baby uh, and eventually I became a school teacher and I had a three-year-old by that stage and then one on the way so that was my second son and then uh, I was actually quite happily a school teacher for about eight years and then I must have gotten too comfortable and felt a desire call it a calling or something for a change And as things would have it, and that that perhaps was the thing that seeded the idea, just as I was coming to the end of the degree, someone just mentioned that medicine, which was the holy grail that I failed to achieve back when I was 17, that medicine now had a graduate entry program where they only take people who are mature age, who have already done another university degree and done well at it, and had to do an interview and had to do a scholastic aptitude test for it. And anyway, after eight years of teaching or so, I just for various reasons, which would probably be a whole other podcast, I just felt the urge to have a change. So I went and did those things. I went and did the scholastic aptitude test, which was cost me a couple of hundred dollars that I probably couldn't afford. But my wife, as always, took a punt on me. She enrolled me in it. She paid the money. She got all my old academic records and, uh, you know, forwarded them and, uh, 
and at that stage was having my third child, my daughter. She had only just been born about three weeks before, and it was the first day of school holidays. And I, my wife and I both remember very clearly, we're just lying on the bed, cooing and tickling our little baby, thinking how good life is, how relaxed everything was. And we heard the post office, uh, the postie pull up out the front, heard the mailbox open and close, and we made eye contact. And it was absolutely certain, like it was a, a, a clang, and, and that was my invitation to travel to medical school. So we, in very short order, swaddled up our baby and our kids and packed our entire life possessions into a 40-foot container, which was a tight squeeze, and um, finished renovating and sold our house in order to pay to be able to, you know, study uh, for four years. And we chuffed over to medical school. All of us, three kids, uh, two cats, uh, and my wife and I, and I really uh, enjoyed being a student for years of, you know, studying, which by comparison to a full-time job, isn't that hard. We came back home and I was starting as a junior medical officer. And then uh, about seven years of being a doctor. And then I started training to become a cardiologist. So I'm a heart doctor. Some things in life kind of have a poetic closure to them or some sort of closure. In my final year of training as a cardiologist, so I was not yet qualified. I still had to do some hoops to jump through, but I was all but done. I was pretty much at the top of my game and I was at the hospital and a arrhythmic cardiac arrest came in and I was in the ED at the time and so I basically oversaw his resuscitation, the medications that were given and the various shocks that needed to be given to him to get his heart to behave itself instead of fibrillating. I knew, even looking at him in a state of not being very well, that the person I was resuscitating was the tutor that I had when I studied architecture when I was 17 years old. So this is probably more than 17 years later. So he was a person to whom I had no particular warm feelings. He was a guy who was a, you know, kind of called me out as not being very good at something. He was a living reminder of my early failures to launch in life. And uh, yeah, that was him. And uh, he came back alive quite well. And I, you know, spent a bit of time investigating and managing him and medicating him and all that. And it was a couple of days. He was quite sick when he came in, but he bounced back and he was perfectly well. And it was a couple of days later until he realised who I was. Not because he recognised me, but because I told him, I said, oh, you are an arch- a teacher of architecture. And I told him my story. I said I was one of your, you know, less successful students and so on. And I was trying to be humble because it's not, it wasn't about me. It was about him. I didn't want to overbear him. And he just wouldn't let me leave the room. He said, I want to know how you went from being a, an apparent abysmal failure to doing this. 
he said, first of all, he said, no one can be more grateful than I am that you aren't an architect because otherwise I'd be dead. And he, he really wanted to know what the pathway was of my life from bombing out at architecture school to being here as a doctor uh, clearly involved in his care. They say never meet your heroes, but never meet your enemies either because this guy who was evil incarnate uh, when I was a young man uh, was just a lovely middle to late middle-aged man who just did and wanted the same things as all the rest of us. And it was just nice to get to know him as a human being. And uh, it was just an interesting circle of life kind of experience. I hope you have enjoyed this fantastic story. Yet again, one that speaks about this great circle of life, as he puts it, and the mystery of destiny. If you have enjoyed this story, please leave a review or rating on Apple Podcast and share it. And if you have some friends you think might enjoy listening to Dear and Cabot, send them a link, especially if they live in a faraway land, one of those countries I will be researching on the map. Also, from now on, I will try releasing the future episodes on a Sunday morning so that you might be able to enjoy and listen in bed with a nice cup of tea or coffee. Have a good two weeks and until we meet again in the airing cupboard, goodbye. Thank you.